Are you hinting to me it's time to move off my Netscape browser? <laughs> that might be the case. That might be the case. <laughs> Welcome back, everybody, to this week's Sales Strategy and Enablement Podcast. I'm Alistair Wilcox, CSRO here at Revenue.io, and I'm thrilled to have with me a special guest today, a friend of mine for better part of a decade, Derek Knudsen. Derek has a fabled and magic background being in roles as CTO, CDO, CIO, partner, but he's just one of the smartest, most creative guys I know, worked at Alteryx worked at Notarize, Credera Management Consulting Firm, and the list goes on. So highly credentialized, but we've been fortunate to recruit him over here to Revenue.io as our Chief Delivery Officer. Derek, how are you? I'm good, Alistair. Thanks for having me on your podcast. Yo, Derek, one of the biggest things you and I often talk of is value realization. It's impact to growth, how we scale companies and what that means. And I want to start this week. We always like to start off with some news. I'm going to call out to another friend of mine, David Yolkoson, Distinguished Vice President Analyst at Gartner. And he wrote something fantastic this week that I saw. I'm just going to read his quote. He says, every client interaction I have regarding the construction of ROI, return on investment calculators, and the presentation of ROI gets an immediate no-go. Stop said, we got to talk about value. Said, value discussions require knowledge of challenges, priorities, and pain points. Value discussions require empathy and then an understanding of where to apply differentiated stuff like products and services to drive positive change and outcomes. Value discussions include risk mitigation, change management, implementation guidance. The promise of value realization help post-purchase. All this contributes to the business case construction. Once this is accomplished, then in all caps, you can speak to metrics like ROI, TCO, MPV, and our friends on finance that have to weigh in on investments, put the business case together, close deals, win customers. So that's David Yolkerson, Distinguished Vice President Analyst at Gartner. Derek, I know you're you're big in this space of value realization, but I'd love to dive into, do you think David's right? B, how does value realization impact growth? Oh yeah, as, as you mentioned, I'm, this is a space that excites me a ton. I think uh, having been in this industry a long time, you know, I've worked a bunch together, I think, but we always goal ourselves on is being able to articulate value back in the same language as the customer. And I think it's easy to get stuck on metrics and data uh, that has no correlation to customer outcomes. At the end of the day, the customer buys software or a service to generate a specific outcome. And so if you can't speak the language of that outcome or understand it, have empathy towards it, and then goal yourself and your efforts towards helping them achieve those outcomes, then metrics and data doesn't really matter. I think it's very easy to create a bunch of metrics. I think many companies suffer from it. During my time on Alteryx, we talked about this a lot. Uh, when I was CTO there is People get caught up in if I generate enough visualizations or reports or charts that something along the way will hit on a key value point for a customer. So it's a, you know, throw a million darts at the dartboard. Hopefully one of those things hits on the value proposition the customer's most interested in. And I think you and I both experience doesn't work that way. You, you have to really understand what your customer values. And it's not just 
results on a financial piece of paper. It could be positioning for promotion or acquisition or a variety of different leaders around value that you have to make sure you're conscious of. And then you can make all the data and analytics and, and product implementations and feature enablements happen towards going against those value propositions. But you got to make sure you connect those two things for sure. So I, I'd love maybe if you could, for the benefit of our audience, like think through an example of this. You mentioned you know, what you did at Altrix there. Like it's a, there's a hugely data-centric company, obviously, because it lives in the world of analytics, pioneering many of the platform insights and all of that. You know, when we think of overwhelming, there's an analogy I used to use at Gardner all the time, and I'd use ice cream as the example. You know, when you give people more choice, it doesn't necessarily change an outcome. The example with ice cream is if you and I go get an ice cream today, hot sunny day, we wander to do an average ice cream shop. An average ice cream shop today is a dizzying amount of flavors, 50 or more. A wild bubblegum, blueberry, lobster-based ice cream, true flavor from Bar Harbor, Maine, by the way, might be delicious. The reality is over 90% of consumers always default back to chocolate, vanilla, and strawberry. So you know, how do we, when we talk value realization, I think often product teams and sales teams and go-to-market teams, well, if I just had this, if I just had this, if I just had this, and it's this just have motion that exasperates the, the need for 50 ice cream flavors, when actually you never even help people connect the dot on why chocolate is still the number one flavor. Yeah. It's a great analogy. I, I think uh, it doesn't matter what industry you are, but I will say it's probably most pronounced in, in the software industry. I think people get enamored with, if I give you more something in what I give you, you're going to find value in much to your ice cream analogy. Uh, and there's a lot of studies that have been shown that 70% of what software companies build at, at zero to negative value. And I think best in class, you're probably looking at 50%. So I, I think companies get really excited about more stuff on top of more stuff about making sure the fundamental value proposition of their software or their service is really hitting on all cylinders. Uh, and when that's hitting well, then you can enhance that value. Uh, but you got to make the fundamental value proposition that you're trying to put forth in your product or your service is, is hitting. And I think at times people would get so enamored why landed something I think customers like it. I'm not 100% sure. I don't know if they're getting value, but I have personal confidence in this concept. So I'm going to keep adding and adding onto it until hopefully one day I get to a precipice of value that the customer realizes and then I can, they can realize the outcome I want. And I think that's a dangerous path for a lot of us software companies to go down because again, 70% of the things you build add zero to negative value. So when we were at Alteryx, we did index a lot on product MPS. And we always felt that if our product core product MPS, it wasn't feature specific, it was the overall experience around our, our core products, our flagship designer product being the most important. If, if customers felt the value and all of that value came through a net promoter score specific to the product, then we kind of earned the right to enhance that. But if our NPS was poor, we weren't really allowed to go add shiny new objects to it. We had to solve the core value proposition of our software. And then once you kind of got to a, accept the level of net promoter score, then you kind of earn the right to enhance. And I think that's, again, it's just connecting the work you do to adding value that a customer can intrinsically feel. Uh, and I think you and I have talked about this concept of you've got a business objective or a general you know, company objective doesn't necessarily have to be a business outcome. Now, what are my value propositions as a company um, and through my products that I'm trying to give you that will enable you to achieve that outcome? How do I connect that language? And then as you click into the product side of things, you go from, well, 
general value propositions that are probably you know, cross company, cross product. It could be a use case or a user scenario that goes across my platform. How do I now enable that specifically within specific product capabilities? And then kind of at the root, how do I create those product capabilities with features? And I think that there's kind of a stacking or a cascading of value, but the, the, the things you put in your product fundamentally at that kind of value creation layer has absolutely got to be in support of building your way back up to helping a customer achieve a business outcome. And I think at times we, we lose focus on that. So that, that sounds very akin to a waterfall, but a bi-directional waterfall, right? Problem building down through value realization, creation, and then the outcome, but then also building it back up via the metric and the result each way. Am I thinking of that in the right way, this bi-directional waterfall you're describing? You know, as, you, as you think of our listeners, is that how they need to be thinking about this? Very much so. It's in a, it's in a reinforcing cycle if you think about it. So let, let's go through a sales scenario. So, and we'll pick on ourselves. You know, we go into a company, we're about helping customers increase sales. So that's a business objective. Now, if we say, you know, one of the value propositions that we offer is around increasing sales uh, personnel efficiency. Well, that could be measured as kind of, you know, the number of reps exceeding or attaining a quota, as an example. So how do we, from a features perspective or a, a kind of a cross product capabilities perspective, make that come alive? Well, if we're talking to a customer who's interested in that problem and appreciates that, that's a need, right? That's an intrinsic need, that business value that I just talked about is, hey, I had to get my reps to be more productive, uh, more efficient. Then I would say, well, do you believe that helping coach your reps and providing kind of continual education is going to make them a better salesperson? Absolutely. Okay. Well, our platform offers that. And so what we kind of take you down that process, we make sure what you're valuing and what we're positioning line up. And so then we get post deal and then we want to make sure now you're realizing that value. Now we're going to go take a look at the analytics associated with each one of those and say, well, hey, we talked about the importance of, you know, coaching in terms of its impact to, to sales efficiency and helping your quotas exceed growth. Do you still believe that's the case? Yes, I do. Well, let's go take a look at how you're doing. Well, if we take a look kind of at the dashboard associated with coaching, you're, you're not using some of these fundamental capabilities that, that we've seen will increase kind of coaching outcomes and will improve what we disagreed to, which is those, those top line payment numbers you're trying to achieve. Well, interesting. Well, let's go understand why you're not using something within our platform. And let's have metrics looking at, you know, why are we struggling to get the adoption of some of these features? It could be the features aren't implemented in an obvious and intuitive way. It could be we haven't done proper enablement. It hasn't been, you don't have proper internal advocacy for this work. Let's go kind of execute on a get well plan so you can realize the increased coaching, which will impact your quota attainment by having your recipe more effective, which will impact at the end of the day what you care about the most, which is creating this business outcome around increasing sales. And so you can see how it's reinforcing each direction. And I think that that that's powerful because it crosses the organization too. It's not just engineering or sales, it's your customer success folks, it's your support folks. You're all speaking a common value-centric language that is akin to your customer values. And so it just reinforces the cultural connection with your customer. And the one thing I want to point out there that I'm a big fan of, that you said quickly, and I just make sure people hear very well, the agreement with the customer at each one of those steps. And I know that sounds simplistic, but I will tell you how often people don't. We, we sell on, hey, you're going to go achieve X. And then there's never actually agreement on, but 
but what do you really need to achieve in the business? You know, and and how are we actually going to measure the change? How are we going to then from there ensure we scorecard and understand what is there? And you're you're lining up that agreement every single piece. And look, everybody listening in, I, mean, I know it's easy to say, well, create a benchmark and compare. Most enterprise companies today struggle to know what they're doing. They struggle to know how they're performing on a function. So it's great they have a top-line business objective, but they themselves don't actually know what the before and after instance would look like. They know the North Star, but they don't know the nuance underneath. And I think, Derek, what you're laying out there is, yes, it's helpful as a vendor, but equally as impactful to the customer and helping them with this recursive model, this bi-directional waterfall model to sequentially move through and know from my objective to my value prop, to my value realization, to the creation, here's how each step is actually going. And, and we agree because the person that's realizing the value is probably the individual contributor. The person that's probably sold on the proposition was some director or manager. The objective is coming from the executive that few people are ever going to meet. And the creation of all of that is what the vendor is actually hopefully providing. And I think you know you got to lock in and, and help the customer see that. And that isn't an org chart of how I'm going to support your account. Yeah, spot on. Spot on that. Like that, I think, intrinsically is what you have to focus on is that customer connectivity point. And as you know, it can easily get lost in terms of selling features. Um, you know, everybody gets caught up in feature comparisons, whether that be an analyst comparison or what have you, that the more features, you know, mean the better your product is. There's a lot of very simple products out there. I'll pick on Twitter, not a sophisticated product, but it solved an unmet need and it had a market opportunity that was a customer need that wasn't being satisfied. You know, that's, I think as a, as an organization, as revenue IO and as any software or any company in general, like you have to continue to anchor on that unmet need. Uh, and if you don't talk about the need versus kind of the what and the minutia around it, you're going to lose those customers. And so you got to anchor every conversation on value. And I think what we're going to do more and more of is make sure that that connection becomes super obvious in our product experiences, that anything you see within our product experiences, you can correlate back to these value propositions, these value realization experiences you have within our software and our platform. Like if we could do that, then it's very easy for a customer to realize the value because they can see and feel it because it ties directly back into the things that we talked about when we first engage with a prospect or a customer related to our platform or a product on our platform, et cetera. And there's, uh, I'm in quote mode today, but I remember there's a great quote from a Harvard Business Review in an article called Problem with Product Proliferation. And they go on and they say, on average, product variety is not correlated with profitability. That's hugely important in today's world. They say the bottom line, the more potentially value generating innovations you add to your company's product portfolio, the more value destroying complexity you are likely to embed in your business. Hey, you, know, you just think about that for a second and go, look, we live in, especially for tech companies, but even non-tech companies, there's huge pressure right now with generative AI. Like it's finally hit the world of artificial intelligence. You and I have been around for well over a decade more now, uh, almost, well, I suppose, decade and a half. It's, it's hitting the mainstream now. Like my kids talk about it. People talk about it at home. People suddenly go, okay, it's moved from Hollywood into general use and, and things like that. Generative pumped it up even more with ChatGPT and the like. And every board right now, 
I don't care if you're an automotive company to a manufacturing company to a tech company. You know, everybody's going, how do we innovate? What do we do? How do we do more? And I think building in a vacuum without the correlation to the appropriate, you know, what what is that doing for the customer? What's the problem it's solving for? Is that really clear? And is it clear in terms of the basic structure you've laid out all the way through value generation? All you're doing is adding complexity. And it's going to cost you money. It's going to confuse your go-to-market team. It's going to slow your market entrance. And and if your if your competitor gets that right and you get it wrong, you now are going to cost yourself existing revenues you already have. I mean, agreed. I, I, I know a comparative analogy or quote is, and you and I discussed this. It was a while back now, but I sent you some articles by somebody who's pretty renowned in the the product space, and they quoted something that has been quoted a lot. But today's day and age around product, you know, it needs a turn from being output focused to being outcome focused, yeah. right? And that kind of speaks to what I talked about earlier, where I think a lot of times there's a lot of products out there who have have very rich, at least in terms of the company's perspective of rich functionality. I'll pick on Microsoft Word. You know, there's a huge portion of why Microsoft Word, probably excess of 90% that the common user will never use, but they, they put a lot of like rich capabilities in that platform. So you can get over indexed on, hey, I'm just going to create a bunch of outputs uh, and hopefully that one of those outputs creates an outcome. And with each one of those outputs, especially in the software space, it comes at a cost. I have to maintain that. I got to enhance that. I got to bug fix that. And so that's why I think the measurement in terms of where you place your bets is just so critical. And so for us as an organization, as, as you're aware, like we are going to be hyper-focused on making sure that we place a product that is, is in support of a value proposition that is at the heart of the value objectives we know our customers want to achieve. And if it's not, then we should be having a serious conversation on are we trying to extend our value proposition or is it just a convenience for us to try to create something that we think is just yet something else? Uh, I think there's going to be more balanced conversations around that going forward. Frankly, with kind of the way organizations are thinking about investing these days, regardless, since money isn't as free as it used to be, I think you're going to see a lot more organizations be much more outcome focused going forward. Because uh, if we just can't throw raw horsepower and resources at those problems anymore, uh, we have to be much more thoughtful in how we approach them. So I have a question for you on that. How did you think of this topic? You think of that flow, you think of the customer and internal. And let's just, I'm going to go back to your Altrix days here as well. And, and just for context again for the listeners, at that point in time, we're talking three-ish years ago, roughly, you know, it was on a tear in the market worth billions as one of the darling Charles on Wall Street. It's like it was, it was in a highly innovative space, relentless pressure, go, 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 go. How did, how did you make this work at the C-suite? How did you get your chief sales officer on board? How did you get like customer success on board. And like there's there's multiple elements to making this work. It isn't just what do we bring to market and how. How does that jellification work and what was that experience like? I, I think for for us there, I think we have a, a pretty strong and highly empathetic founder team between Dean and and Libby that were hyper customer focused. Because I think they grew up with a company when it was one of the older startup companies. I mean, it was founded in the 90s as kind of a nuanced geospatial company. It ended up, you know, 15 years later, to your point, you know, being 
a darling of Wall Street, you know, you know, valuations that were well in excess of, you know, 10, 15 billion dollars. Yeah. Uh, was the one public traded tech stock in the world at one point. But a lot of that was based on both Dean and Libby's, you know, unaltering view of the customer. And I think the folks they hired into customer facing roles absolutely lived and breathed the customer. And I think that made that customer feeling come alive in in our platform. So we use third party platforms to do customer engagement versus having to go through a variety of funnels to get to the engineering team. We continuously heard uh, a ton of customer feedback from our software platform. So we kind of deflected support costs by having this amazing Alteryx community that we developed. It was voted number one community in software multiple years. And so the voice of the customer is never lost in our organization. Uh, we couldn't just walk away and separate ourselves from our customer. And so I think because of Dean and Libby and the way that they built the culture, uh, and then some of the enablement they did around kind of community support and some of our programs around, you know, creating high capable uh, Alteryx power users. Uh, we called them Alteryx Aces. It was so customer reinforced that it just became habitual in our culture. So I think that's an easy way to solve that. Probably you're blessed with that, I think, coming in. That's why I think I told you the other day, our, our product MPS, I think, at Designer was in the mid-50s at one point, which is just insane. Um, and I, that meant we just, we were so connected with our customer and the problems they were trying to solve, right? You're we very value centric that we were able to create this amazing software product that customers absolutely love. Now, the problem Alteryx faces today is the world has moved past them technically, but their customers are still so in love with this 20 year old piece of software that they can't move past that. Um, and I think that's been a bit of the struggle they faced as of recent is trying to get them to move to something new and you're so comfortable with something that you've had forever, that's a huge organizational challenge. Uh, and I think that's one they, they've been trying to fight through. Are you hinting to me it's time to move off my Netscape browser? <laughs> that might be the case. That might be the case. <laughs> or if you're on my space, it might be time to leave. But, uh, <laughs> but again, fortunate in that circumstance, that's that's the culture that, that we walked into. I know. Fast forward to Notarize. You know, it was it was harder to build that at Notarize, a very complex space. Uh, notarization sounds pretty straightforward until you get into the space of real estate. Then it's a really really complex, difficult problem domain to understand. So I think my engineering team, when I was CTO there, you know, some of them really struggled to connect to the customer problem, especially on that real estate side, because it's such a nuanced, specialized space that you can't live and breathe it. It didn't feel like that for us. So. I made a bit of an impact for us, for sure, on that side of it. And we had to work hard to get our way out of that, that specific position. I want to play the counterintuitive piece here as well, because you've given two great examples of how to go through this and how to create value realization frameworks and companies. What wouldn't you do? Or what are the biggest flags? Well, I would never start bottoms up. Like I think we talked about the value stacking. Is it? You have to be able to understand your customer. You have to start at the business objectives you're trying to meet for your customers uh, and uh, the value propositions that you think yourself and your company are positioned to help satisfy. I think it's really dangerous to start at the kind of the low level product piece of it and then think you can infer it away to customer value. I think that that's definitely a problem a lot of software companies can feel. If you're a traditional kind of founder-led, product-led company, uh, and you've had a really success, I think it's very easy to get caught up in a bit of hubris around all my ideas are good because I've showed market momentum. And I think that's okay to a point, but I think once you get into, especially the enterprise space, enterprise customers, they very much care that you understand their problems, right? That's why you're in the enterprise space. That's why you have customer success managers and 
dedicated account executives. Like you have to have that connectivity to your customer. You can get away with it to some extent in a kind of SMB space. If you've got really great kind of onboarding capabilities that's driven through software and documentation, like you can kind of get away with it. But as you extend yourself into the enterprise software space, there comes with that an expectation um, that you understand the customer's problem. So I would say either starting kind of on the low end uh, in terms of thinking more feature related to start uh, is dangerous to think you can just infer customer problems. Again, 70% of what we think are great ideas and solve customer problems don't. And the other thing I think I would I would be cautious of is on the enterprise side of things, when you're moving into that enterprise segment or TAM, yeah. making sure you are getting the voice of the customer through those kind of customer facing roles, because in the SMB space, you typically don't get those. A lot of the things you build in the SMB space is, is based on product ideas. It's not as much based on on enterprise customer feedback. And those could be much more nuanced and complex. I, I, I go on all day with you, Derek, as we often do, but unfortunately, Dave, our producer is pinging me saying, we are out of time for today. But you know, this topic of value realization, I'd love to carry on in the future with you as well, which I think how we contextualize this to the sales, to the customer success and all those teams, we're just scraping the surface here. And, it, and it's been fantastic, awesome examples. Now. We always wrap up with a little bit of trivia, Indeed. and I'll do my best to attempt to stump you. Usually I don't others, but the spirit of creating value and changes that we all are experiencing today, generative AI is front and center amongst executives. In fact, you know, it is now said by the World Economic Forum that over half of all employees need reskilling over the next 24 months and helping companies realize the value out of the growth bets that people are going to make in this space is going to be more important than ever because there's a lot of stuff happening all over the world. So my trivia question for you is this, and it pertains to the amount of people that are already using generative AI. According to a recent study by McKinsey and Company, generative AI is now being used by what percentage of workers? 54%, 64%, 79%. Hmm. So that's all workers, right? Not just somebody who's all a specific segment. Yeah. I would probably say 54 betting on the non-information worker type folks, but I'm guessing I'm going to be wrong on that. Uh, I, I, you know, for once, I'm happy I got to stump somebody. So yes, you're wrong. It's actually 79% is what McKinsey and company found. But your instinct is right. Because the part two of that statement is only 22% use it regularly for everyday work tasks. And that right there is a lack of value realization. When you have a bunch of people that use it once or twice and think it's going to help, but then you only have regular repeatable usage and it's very low and you had that big of a delta, clearly we're not realizing value out of the technology quite yet. Yeah. I think that's a great, great, great example of that. Derek, thanks so much for joining us today. Love to have you back. Keep up all the awesome work and the stories, the adventures in the world of technology. Thrilled to have you with us here, of course, at Revenue.io. For those listening in, please remember to like and subscribe and send in your questions to our night and we'll do our best to get them on a future episode. Derek, it's been a pleasure having you. Thank you so much. Thanks, Alistair.